Kevin Putlick. Anthony Marcel Green. Lawrence Hawkins. Maurice S. Gordon. Isaiah Lewis. Antoine Rose. Calvin Tony. Sean Lee Fur. Marcus McVeigh. Marcus David L. Peterson. The Boy Lister. Michael Johnson. Kevin Bruce Mason. James Bordai. Anthony Antonio Ford. Donnie Sanders. Gregory Griffin. Juan Marquis Jones. Isaiah Tucker. Brianna Taylor. Jimmy Atchison. Stephen Clark. Dewan Gilroy. Barry Gideas. Danny Washington. Cameron Hall. Aaron Bailey. William Howard Green. Jesse J. Quinton. Mario D'Antoni Bass. David Jones. Michael Dean. Jacob Gervais. Darian Baker. Mark Brandon Davis. Atatiana Jefferson. Charles Roundtree. Ronell Foster. Rico Devante Holden. Melvin Watkins. James Leatherwood. John Bellon. Jordan Edwards. Shinara Tom Thiep. Cynthia Fields. Michael Wilson. Alteria Woods. Joseph Delon Richardson. Rashawn Washington. Keita O'Neill. Charles David Robinson. Ryan Twinman. This is half of a list. 52 names of black men and women who were unarmed with no history of mental illness, who were shot and killed by on-duty police officers between 2015 and today. Hello, I'm Andrew Knight, and welcome to this combined Skeptics and Seekers and Proscenium podcast. Over the next hour or two, you'll hear more about the numbers and learn much more about the history of racism against black and brown communities all over the world. But for now, I want to hand the mic over to a well-known and popular voice, the host 
of Skeptics and Seekers, and a lifelong friend of mine, David Johnson. Hello, everybody. Thank you uh, for tuning in, and I want to um, go ahead and introduce the rest of the cast of characters. Before I do, I just want to uh, say that uh, when when we get together on a panel, we usually have a lot of fun. We usually um, let our hair down a bit. This is not going to be fun. Uh, this is this is going to be messy, ugly, hard, and necessary. Uh, and I appreciate you bearing with us. For those of you who are wondering what I had to say uh, on the current crisis, you should be more careful what you wish for because you're about to hear some of it. Uh, and joining me to uh, say some of that is uh, Chase from our uh, last uh, outing, a conversation with Chase. Chase Tyler is uh, one of my new best friends. Hello, everybody. It doesn't take much for me to, uh, to gain a best friend. Chase is a black guy. He's a young black male. He is an endangered species. Chase, say hello. <laughs> hello, everybody. How are you guys? I, I don't know why I'm asking you guys this is if you're going to answer me back. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard the sound of the enemy. Young black man. Sorry, I said this wasn't going to be fun. <laughs> but it's exactly as scary as they all thought. <laughs> so, so far, you are having fun. That's uh, <laughs> I am whistling past the grave. I can tell you that... Um, my eyes are damp uh, after the memorial. It started after about the second name. And I've been planning to do this for a while. And it just, um, the moment caught me. And uh, finally, uh, our, our token European, Matthew, uh, Matthew Taylor. How you doing? Good day, mate. Hopefully the bending of some terms will make some people see today. That's right. Yeah. So with that in mind, I have... I am clearly the wrong person to have been given the mic. So I am going to give it back <laughs> to Andrew to kick us off. Uh, we each have a, a few things that we'd like to say. Um, and so I'm going to actually start with Andrew, who helped set the, set the stage. So we're each bringing a different perspective to this podcast. What I have been particularly interested in in the last... Uh, well, since the death of George Floyd, is current events. Uh, I've never been a big history guy. Um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't disdain black history, uh, and I probably know more black history than I do any other history, but I'm not a history guy. I am, however, a current events guy, uh, it, and, and maybe that's a, a part of history, so if you think I'm being inconsistent, okay. But I, I do care about current events, and I care about numbers. And one of the current events that I care most about is what NASCAR did this week. So some of you listeners won't know much about NASCAR, and some of you will. Those of you who do know NASCAR, and for those of you who don't, it has traditionally been an all-white, all-male, all-married sort of environment. It's been uh, a place that is a bastion for Southern conservative lifestyle and 
that spills over all over the NASCAR circuit, everywhere in the country. NASCAR may be one of the most conservative sports organizations on the planet. And this week, they took a step that I can say I honestly didn't expect. NASCAR, in, in what I can only think of as a, as a moment of almost infinite clarity for that organization, has banned the exhibition of rebel flags at any NASCAR event, whether it's the Cup Series or the Truck Series or the Xfinity Series, you'll no longer see a rebel flag at a NASCAR event. Let's make that clear for anyone who may not understand what a rebel flag is. That is a Confederate flag. Well, right. The rebel flag, the Confederate flag, it's also, it's also the battle flag of the North Virginia Army. It is Georgia's state flag. It is the flag that you saw on the General Lee in the Dukes of Hazzard. That flag, that flag is no longer allowed at NASCAR events. And it's because NASCAR was willing to say out loud, we want an open and inclusive environment for everyone to be able to enjoy NASCAR. And that's quite a current event. Well, thank you for listening to our show. <laughs> so, um, I guess I'm supposed to go uh, next. I, um, I, I thought you were going, yeah. Do you, do you have some more to uh, add? No, I, I look. I don't think it. Needs I have to a that. thought on thought on that, and I don't know how well you guys know this uh, over in America, but um, here in Europe, the that flag means practically nothing. I remember it from watching Jokes of Hazard as a child, and I've become aware over the last year or two that it is associated with white nationalism. That's mostly probably the the fault of your current president. But up until that point, I really had no association with that flag. But seeing the news from NASCAR in the last day or two, it did strike me as being big because of the knowledge that I've gained over the last year. But the thought that went straight through my mind is, you know what, after the Second World War, Germany banned all, all public displays of the swastika. And I believe that ban is still in place. Somebody feel free to fact check me. Um, so here in Europe, we're familiar with a concept of a flag that is instantly associated with with racism and worse being being banned. And we deal with that quite OK over here. So I suspect that the response, your guys will have to confirm me on this, but I suspect to many people, especially blacks, that the sight of that flag over in America probably strikes the same kind of thoughts that I would think if I was to see a swastika in terms of the hate and the, the racism that, that that shows. So my first thought is, A, it's big, but B, it's probably a good thing to do and you guys will get over it. But I suspect there's going to be quite a backlash immediately as well. But you'll yes. get over it. So here's, here's the thing that, uh, just to provide some historical context here, the Confederate flag, so you... If you're not in America, you might actually know this. If you're an American with an American uh, public school education, you may not know it. 
uh, the Confederacy um, was the losing side of the Civil War. Uh, so this is this is um, where this dates to. And uh, what was the Confederacy fighting for? Well, a number of things. It depends on who you're talking to. Uh, it, we could say broadly that they were fighting for states' rights, but the real issue that the catalyst for the states' right was slavery. Uh, they wanted states wanted the right to maintain slavery. Um, this is. Um, kind of the the um, big reason why we had the Civil War. I'm speaking cautiously because uh, if you're a history buff and a Civil War buff, you know that you can uh, list pages and pages of reasons why we had the Civil War without talking about slavery, but I also think that it's somewhat disingenuous to do so. Uh, and so when we talk about the Confederate flag, we're talking about the flag of the losing side that wanted to continue the oppression of black people. That is the flag that still flies proudly uh, over many state capitals and over many events. And that's the flag that we're talking about. And so, yes, I appreciate uh, you, Matthew, for saying it is our equivalent, at least for half of our population, of the swastika. Except that Germany had... Can, can there be something more offensive to American ideals, to the, to the fabric of what we think of as America, to the sort of freedom that, that we proudly champion around the world? Can there be something more offensive than Germany being the country that wipes out? They, they've gone around all of the public buildings that proudly display the swastika, and they've obliterated it. It's gone. Yeah, I mean, that's, right. I mean, that's that's how I feel. I mean, I guess for me, it's for NASCAR. I mean, for the NASCAR subject, to me, it's like, is is that enough? Because I mean, just as, just as you're saying, Germany did that at the end of their war that many years ago. We're just now today saying, oh, one organization is gonna no longer have it, but our country is still waving that flag proudly all over the place. Yeah, so and some of our some of our most powerful conservatives. And dare I say Christians, I don't mean to, to Christian bait today, are still fighting tooth and nail to keep those flags up. And it's not just the flags, it's the monument, the monuments to the uh, war heroes who fought to keep slavery going. Those, um, those great Confederate Americans who I don't even I don't even like to talk about it. But yes, we are still in the fight of our lives just to get some of those monuments taken down. They're still up today. We're still fighting over that today. By the way, they're tearing them down in England. But if they're you did that today here down. in America, you'd be considered an in, in every way, shape, or form a criminal. Right. But and so I I I take Andrew's news of NASCAR. By the way, almost synonymous with white racism, NASCAR. <laughs> um, <laughs> look it up. Um, is there an anagram in there? Racism. Rearrange the letters. And... So, I, yes, NASCAR is trying to uh, have a better image after all these years. But look at the date. Look at the calendar, people. It's 2020. That's just now happening. This is... This is the minor victory we get after how many lives being snuffed out. And now we've gone to uh, race riots and a bit of looting. And hey, 
we get the Confederate flag taken out of NASCAR finally. I don't want to jump to the end. I'm sorry. I'm glad I get a consolation prize. <laughs> but that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. So for those whose head has been buried in the sand, uh, George Floyd, uh, his name was not uh, on the list that we read just now. Um, There's a reason a ch- for that. Yes. Well, I, I, Andrew, Andrew will share more about that sort of thing, but he, um, he's a black guy. Uh, he was a hard bitten criminal. He's a black male. His, uh, his hard bitten crime was to be in possession of a counterfeit $20 bill. And in this country, you get the death penalty for having a counterfeit $20 bill. If you're black. And his particular death penalty was carried out by at least a couple of policemen. It wasn't just the guy with the knee on his neck. There was also a guy with a knee on his back at at a time. They got the guy, wrestled him down, got him cuffed. He wasn't, uh, by uh, all bystander reports, was not uh, resisting arrest. Did not have a weapon. Had no weapon. Uh, no threat to any police um, in there. There were four officers around him involved. Uh, so he's on the ground. His hands are cuffed behind his back. And then the knee goes on the back of his neck. Because, you know, why not? And it remained there for eight minutes and 40-odd seconds. I don't remember exactly that amount of time. But for the first part of the time when he could, he was telling them, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I need help. The bystanders could hear him. You can hear it on the videos that were taken by iPhones. And we all know how sound capture is on videos. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, by but, the way, I, this, is, this is an important, uh, so, so there's some biology here. Uh, there have been two other black men uh, in the news for this exact same reason, who who have been murdered. And if you don't like that word, too damn bad. Run your own fucking. This podcast, podcast is going to get rough for you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if you, if you don't like that word, run your own fucking podcast. I don't care. So there are two other men, black men who have had to say the exact same thing. They've, they've been in the news together. You can, you can look up George Floyd's picture. You'll find these other two men. The exact same problem. But here's, here's the important point. There's a, there's a common idea in law enforcement. This has come out in the press now. That if you can speak, you can breathe. Bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> Fucking bullshit. But but the thing is, coroners, qualified medical people are saying that is simply not true. Just that is simply not true. Yeah. What you what you're doing when you're speaking is exhaling, essentially. So you've got you've got so many of those speeches you can make before you have to inhale, and then you can't do it. <laughs> Potentially your last right. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring some context to this conversation. Um, we are talking about this, but I want to I want to make this more uncomfortable than that. Because from my 
from my perspective, I'm not here to talk about George Floyd. Uh, I didn't know George Floyd uh, before he was murdered by the police. I didn't know his family. I've never been to Minnesota. Um, I, I feel, I guess, whatever empathy I'm capable of feeling for someone that I didn't know who was publicly mistreated. But, but my problem is not simply with the handling of George Floyd. There have been many George Floyds <laughs> um, going back a really long time. And so we finally heard George Floyd say that he couldn't breathe. But for the last 150 years, that cry has been going out and we haven't heard it. So I want to do the one thing that I hope uh, I can accomplish in this podcast. I, I believe that there are two kinds of listeners here. By the way, any, anytime someone says there are two kinds of, they're probably full of it. I believe there are two kinds of listeners here. There are those who believe that incidents like uh, what happened with George Floyd are isolated incidents. And there are those who believe that it is just one event in a long line of systematic racism. And what I want to do uh, today is convince you, inform you, educate you that this is systematic racism. And if you are still thinking that it's isolated incidents with a few bad apples, A, I haven't done my job, and B, you might be the problem. So I want to start back with something that we all know in common. And I, I can't speak harshly enough about the education system. History is not taught very well, especially black history. Uh, so it can almost be forgiven uh, if you don't understand the history. But I want to start with some piece of history that we all know, and that's slavery. Now, the problem is people uh, will hear someone like me uh, start talking about slavery, and they think, oh, here we go again. You see, that was way back then, and it's over now, and that has nothing to do with what's going on today. And for that person, I just have to say that you don't know history very well. And so it is possible that you can say that a thing is the past if it is a thing that happened and that it stopped happening and that there's not a long uh, line, a long chain of connective events uh, linking it to the present. So I give this parable uh, that I would ask you to engage with. Imagine there is a boy who goes to school every day and along his walk uh, from school, uh, one day he gets met by a pack of bullies and they beat him up and they take his lunch money. And he goes home and he goes back to school the next day and on his way home, the same pack of bullies meet him there and beat him up and take his lunch money. It is wrong to say that the event that happened yesterday is the past. It is not the past. From that boy's perspective, it is just one event in a chain of events leading to the present. It never ended, and so it is not the past. And let us imagine that that boy does this same thing every day, no matter what route he takes. He uh, runs into bullies who beat him up and take his lunch money. 
and that happens for several years. Let's say the only event anyone knows about is the first event. They might mistakenly say, well, that was the past, and you, you've had a bad run of luck with some other guys here and there. But from that boy's perspective, he knows it is not the past. It is a long chain of events that have never ceased. It is the long, horrendous, nightmarish present. And it, it really degrades the boy's plight for someone to say, well, that event was in the past. They simply do not know the present, the life uh, that he has been living every day since then. And so I would say that when I start with slavery, it is only because it is event, an event that we all know about from history. And no one can deny that slavery was itself a case of institutional racism. And so can we build a chain from there to here? I think we can. In fact, I know we can. And so I'm just going to mention a few things that I would ask you to look up. I'm not going to explicate everything uh, that I mention or every term that I give. Toward the end of slavery, uh, we had the history of our policing. The first police forces, the first organized law enforcement that we had in this country, was brought together to deal with the problem of escaped slaves. Because for the white man in the South especially, there was nothing more dangerous than an escaped slave. It would be the equivalent of an escaped lion from a zoo roaming the street. Well, imagine you have a lot of escaped lions. You're gonna need some kind of force to deal with that situation. Well, the South had a black issue. They had a slave issue, a, a loose, escaped, pissed off, dangerous slave issue. Of course they had to bring, bring together some kind of force to deal with that issue. And uh, they, they were called the slave patrol. Uh, sometimes they were called the patrollers, sometimes the patty rollers. Um, you might see these terms as you, as you study your history, but it's all speaking to the same thing. And as we know, there's no way to tell the difference between an escaped slave and a freed black man. And so really, even at that time, the real danger, the real threat was any, any black person without a chain. That is what the original police force was there to deal with. And I know that uh, police forces sprung up, local uh, forces sprung up all over the country. There's some history that we don't have time to talk about. But in every case, it was always about their minority issue, whether it was the American Indians or whether it was the uh, Mexicans. Uh, there, were, there were always forces to deal with this element of danger that was out there. This is the history of the force. So dealing with the uh, uh, perhaps the oldest of these local forces. Uh, we come to the end of slavery. And uh, so... You know, the, zoo, the zoos are now open. <laughs> the lions and tigers and bears are allowed to walk the streets freely. White people are scared out of their minds. And should they be? You bet they should be. There were a lot of pissed off black people who were dangerous <laughs> walking, walking the streets at that point. Now, most of them just wanted to be left alone. I get that. But you have to understand the fear of the day. And so uh, the patrollers became the police of that time, 
And even though slavery had been abolished, the white people had to make sure that there were laws in place and protections in place so that their world didn't fall apart. And so we enter uh, what's known as the Jim Crow era. Look it up. Uh, it's an era that lasted from about uh, 1878 thereabouts to 1965. Uh, it takes us all the way to Martin Luther King. The Jim Crow era was American apartheid. Uh, Europeans may be uh, familiar with the term apartheid. That's that's what it was, pure and simple. Uh, it was terrible. It was a time almost worse than slavery uh, because while uh, blacks were, quote unquote, emancipated, they still weren't uh, considered fully human even at that time. And so the laws were cast to make sure that they couldn't vote and when they were given the right to vote, that that, that voting would be difficult uh, and ineffective for them. Um, someone can ask me about the jelly bean test sometime uh, to give you, to give uh, an example of the types of things that we went through. Uh, a black person uh, looking at a white woman could be pretty much legally lynched. We had vigilante groups like the Klan. They were not the only ones uh, who went around lynching black people who were found Oh, in the wrong part of town at the wrong time of day. This happened all over the country. Uh, I recommend a resource called Sundown Towns. It's a book you can learn uh, about America's dark history uh, during that time. Uh, life for the black man was, was a fight. Just getting up in the day, putting on their pants, and getting, getting to bed that night alive. We had separate uh, entrances to buildings, separate water fountains, separate toilets. Um, just, just imagine the depth of the, the darkness of the heart that a, that a white person could not walk through a door that a black man had walked through. They needed separate doors so that they, wouldn't, they, they would never have the problem of, of rubbing shoulders. They had separate dining experiences when they dined out. They had separate everything, education. I don't have time to talk about education, but the laws about around education almost ensured that blacks would remain separate and certainly unequal uh, in education. And so we moved to Martin Luther King. Did, that, did Martin Luther King solve the problem? No, Martin Luther King didn't start solve the problem. We still had institutional racism. Uh, that had to do with housing, that had to do with uh, unfair safety nets, with uh, reverse incentives that kept uh, the black population down even further. Uh, we quickly move into uh, the uh, 70s and 80s where we find uh, a new war on drugs. And guess what? The war on drugs became synonymous. Drugs, illegal drugs became synonymous with black people. And so the war on drugs really became a war on black people. And even though statistically speaking, uh, whites used illegal drugs the same rate as black people did, it became viewed as a black problem. Uh, we saw on TVs and uh, TV and movies and conversations, a drug dealer is a black guy dealing out of the black neighborhood. And the police are always in the black neighborhoods uh, stopping black people full of drugs. But we know from the records that Black people who were stopped uh, and frisked and so forth had drugs on them no more uh, frequently than white people did. It was at a rate of about 1% to 2% uh, when the police stopped someone suspicion of drugs that someone actually had drugs on them. The war on drugs became uh, 
another opportunity for the police force to protect the white and powerful from the black threat. And that's what happened. And so we were pulled over uh, for just being black while driving, pulled over for being black while walking in the wrong neighborhood. I myself have been slammed up against a police car with a gun pulled at my head because I was near a bank. Don't even get me started. We live this shit every day and it still happens now. My brother has a, uh, a Facebook uh, page where he records, he, he happens to him so often, he took to recording the number of times that the police would just stop him for minor infractions and pull him over and frisk. And it, it's, a, it's a cliche at this point. And I'm sorry that you don't see that this is a continuation of a long chain of events. And so what do we have today? Well, we can celebrate that the cars running around the Indy 500 will not have the Confederate flag slapped on it. Well, thank God for that. I'm sorry. So someone's got to... <laughs> Go ahead, Chase. If you, if you want to follow that. <laughs> no, I mean, those... Everything he said is absolutely right. From I mean, the fact that American's history is American's history is built on the fact that its main prerogative was to suppress Black people, but minorities and all other minorities are along with that. With that, so I mean, from I mean, for me, one of my biggest biggest examples to draw from past, um, past slavery would be um, Black Wall Street. For one, it's literally a prime example of mm. of white supremacy looking to take out an entire successful black community and probably our own our only example of, of a successful black community in history right now in american history and that was back in 1921 in oklahoma so i don't i don't see how where literally we have white people seeing black people progress and progress in a way that we've never seen them have successful businesses the black dollar circulates in in, in, in their community for hundreds of days before it leaves their community, where now it stays in there for for seconds. Um, so these communities are literally able to make themselves better than what they were, and then literally you see white people go in, t burn, literally burn it down, with no with no consequences. Actually, support from a lot of from police authority at that time. Literally, police authority did, were were arresting black owned black business owners from that area just on suspicion. Um, so so they say um, of things and while people who are known to go in and burn down these same neighborhoods and businesses um, were having no charges at all, as even as they are pushing them out, going back to their homes after having their entire work, workplace be burnt down, they're following home to go burn down their homes too. That's, that's American history. When we do something, it's, it's seen as a threat. The only time we, I've ever, at least from, from my perspective in history, the only time minorities or black people were ever included or, want, or needed to be included is when it benefits the white pocket. That's the only time it matters. And even now, we can, when we get into the topics of the companies who are, who are talking, spouting their support, we're definitely going to get into that soon, too. Um, but go ahead, uh, Matt. I'm sorry. No, 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 don't apologize. I found out about that incident that you're talking about only last weekend because somebody posted on Twitter about it and said it was 99 years ago last weekend. And so I read about it and it was my first experience of that. And it was shocking. It made me sick, actually, reading about what happened. But what was what was encouraging 
to me and it's it's only a minor encouragement in the context of everything else but there were an awful lot of people acknowledging that they'd never been taught that but they're also expressing equal disgust and also uh, expressing that this really does need to be taught we need to know about this in history but there was also somebody mentioned quite shamefully that the state in which it happened actually tried to cover up that it actually happened for many many years afterwards yeah i talk about it now and people think i'm talking about a conspiracy in most in, in most cases really like my, my wow. girlfriend I, I mentioned it to her once this stuff happened because she herself is like a, my girlfriend's white um she's ignorant to a lot of these scenarios too um and when i'm bringing up she's like that happened uh or like when i when, you, when we when i talk about the war on drugs for black people, that was not just the war on drugs. That was the war on black people. And when we mentioned that, or all the so-called conspiracies around that and how it even became such a problem, we just sound crazy. And that's how they all. That's that's how these stories are made to make us look. Because to think a whole population of people were trying to take out a whole other population of people for some reason here in America is just absurd. Even though that's the reality. Do you think it's really difficult for white people to accept that that is the legacy of white leadership in America, even if it was a hundred years ago? Um, I would say it's it's an easy over overlook when we're even even because even I even my even when I look back at my history classes, I look back at people in history and presidents and war heroes and I was never taught about the fact that the of the disgusting things they did to minorities, um, from presidents to politicians to whatever. Uh, and they just kind of brush over their negative, their negative thoughts or their negative practices as if, oh, that was just a small piece of what they did because they did all this great thing to rank America today. But unfortunately, I don't like America today. The America today, I can, I can, we can get rid of it and start, and start completely over. To be honest with you. So in the news right now, it, the, the reason, the reason I think we can't give past presidents uh, a pass and just say it's not going on right now, is that, is that in the news right now. There are, there are two headlines. Just, just look them up. Google knows all. Look up Donald Trump cautioning people not to label, not to be too quick to label people as racist. Just Google it. It's not my fault. I'm, I'm aware of it and not responsible for it. And I also want you to look up what the U.S. military is trying to do in renaming military bases that are currently named after Confederate war heroes. The, the U.S. military is open. To, there's there's a, about a dozen of these bases around the United States that carry names of prominent uh, uh, Civil War, uh, particularly Southern uh, leaders in the Civil War. There are about a dozen of these bases named after these guys. And Donald Trump, our esteemed asshole-in-chief, is against renaming these bases. But our military leaders are not. And in fact, there's, there's a bipartisan call in Congress to take steps to rename these bases. And so we can't just say, uh, you know, it was somewhere in the past, but there's another reason we can't. For, for all of you people, for all of you Democrats who, uh, who are like me and going, well, you know, but that's, that's a Republican problem. No, the fuck it's not. Bill Clinton, it was in Bill Clinton's eight years in office that stop and frisk became a policy. 
It was in Bill Clinton's run-up to his second term when he wanted to be perceived as strong on crime. He said, you know what I'm going to do for America? I'm going to put 100,000 more cops on the streets of America. I have an unfortunate fact about a Democrat who was, who was a part of that. And um, unfortunately, Joe Biden's a part of that conversation as well. Um, oh, oh I'm, I'm getting I'm getting to go. <laughs> but I'm not done with Clinton yet. Because well, I don't mean, go ahead. He, well, here's here's the problem with Clinton. So Clinton wanted to put 100,000 more cops on our streets. And Congress said, Bill Clinton, you're a fool. And they gave him 150,000. They gave him funding to put 150,000 more cops on the streets of America. And, and this is my pet peeve. Because what we've done is turn the police force into that group that deals with, uh, that deals with small community issues. They deal with mental illness. They deal with major issues like, uh, like drug trafficking. But... But the problem is, the problem is, there is systemic racism and we're depending on the police to do too damn much. And it's not just a Republican problem. It's a Democratic problem. And yeah, Joe Biden has come around and he's quite willing to say, and Democrats, listen up. Joe Biden is quite willing to play the law and order card himself. Chase, if you've got more to, to add yeah, on to that, please. Um, I, I Actually, be, before you do, I just have to have to dive in just real quick. I'll be out. Um, Andrew, uh, a moment ago, you um, called Donald Trump an asshole in chief. And Not I, strong I, enough for you. <laughs> I just, I want people to take our conversation seriously. And so I want to keep this at a high level of decorum. And so please let us not unnecessarily slander assholes by, <laughs> by calling them Donald Trump's. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I, was, I, was wondering, I was wondering what the payoff on that was gonna be. Just let, just let, you know, my asshole loves to salute Trump every morning. Okay, I, I'm just gonna have to. I'm gonna have to walk away from that. <laughs> I suspect a bit of um, language lingo may have got lost in that translation. Oh no! No 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 no! no we got you. All right. the, the trouble is the imagery was uh, it was it was uh, better than it needed to be. <laughs> you don't like you don't like the thought of a white ass ripping loudly. Tell you what, uh, Chase, why don't you uh, depends clear on the, the air. ass really. I think. <laughs> <laughs> my my apologies but not really uh chase you were you were about to say <laughs> yeah so i mean i guess a big part of and i my, my, i do not have the specific details on hand right now um a lot of the big fact my issue with joe biden um but also something i, I do want to note as on a positive and negative because it's very important for the changes i'm looking for in the future is that this is the man who put a lot of a lot of these laws that you're seeing on um, high incarceration high incarceration rates in a lot of states and things like this and how they're policing and judgment sentences have to go is due to a large in part and and um, by him and he's he has admitted and proudly admitted that fact in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So, I mean, while I I, I hate the fact that this man's even give, having me give credence to something put out by him right now is uh, that commercial about uh, that that Republican commercial about about Joe Biden's negative past. Well, that that's very much true. Like, so I mean, I, I have a, I have a large mistrust as a, as a black as a black man in America with politicians because that's a man I have clearly seen play both sides uh, or playing both sides. Um, and now he's jumping on sides while everyone's rooting for him because he was he was uh, sitting under Obama. That's all good and well. Does that ma- does not mean he knows black plight at all? Because I could even argue that um, someone like Obama, while he is black, he does not always understand black plight because of the positions that white people have been able to put specific black people in to be to be able to ignore a lot of black plight. So can I, I think you've touched on. No, you go, David. Well, I was just going to ask if uh, if we could have a little bit of conversation around law and order, because I think this is um, one of those things that can be confusing uh, to people. Um, Don't you want law and order? Everybody wants law and order, right? I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, So what could possibly be wrong with someone uh, campaigning for more law and order? And I just, I just wanted to um, tackle that for those, uh, who are thinking that way. You just need to have the context of what law and order is a euphemism for, because it really isn't so much about law and order. Uh, like I said in, um, in my way too long speech uh, earlier, uh, the law is not there to protect black people. The law is there to protect other people from black people. And that is truly the how, how law enforcement views their job to this day. That's how they do their job. Uh, they will run a, a black man's plates just because he's black to make sure that he's not up to no good. They, they might stop and question you, uh, check your glove box, just to make sure that you don't have uh, you know, too many kilos of uh, marijuana. So you never uh, know with them. You, d- you just never know. I mean, those guys, oh, look, there's a, there's a congregation of black men on the street corner. Uh, we better break that up. Uh, that assembly, that we don't know what they might be planning. This is how law and order plays itself out on city streets um, in, in real life America. And so, yeah, we all love law and order, but law and order is just a euphemism these days for uh, making white people safe against the real threat. It's like the word urban. Yeah, yeah. So, so look, I, I, uh, I, I'm going to probably say the unpolitically correct thing here. But I will say for the listeners who are reading the articles about defunding police departments and all of that sort of thing. Uh, Two things. First, yes, some funding needs to be taken away from local police departments. And that money needs to be given to community programs. It needs to be given to mental health treatment. It needs to be given to uh, underserved communities, however you prefer to gloss that. Because in the fucking United States... We ought not have underserved communities. That just shouldn't be a thing. (laughs) I don't know how that's a word in in American's dictionary at all. I don't either. On the other hand, I do think that we need... hmm, 
I do think we should have law and order. As long as it doesn't mean Derek Chauvin handcuffing a guy and putting him on the ground and kneeling across his neck until he's dead. Or until it means that the United States has four times the rate of police gun violence as any other developed nation. Our closest analog, Australia, they have 25% of the gun violence problem out of police that we do. 8%, look this up, 8% of deaths due to guns in the United States happen at the hands of police officers. Why are they even their own number? I don't know. So do we need law and order? Sure. I want our children to be able to walk to school safely. But I want, I want that child to be black or brown as well as white. I don't want an eight-year-old black kid in New York to be stopped and handcuffed because he's playing with a stick. And by the way, white people, if you think, if you think that your children are immune, you're wrong. I don't mean that it happens to white children like it happens to black kids. What I mean is a cop that is high on authority, that feels like he can kneel on the neck of any person and kill them, is a menace. And that's not the law and order any of us need. Just wait until they're done with us. Yeah, I'm uh, sorry, done lecturing. I'm <laughs> a little pissed off about the whole thing, to be honest. So, um, so, um, yeah, law and order, that's, um, as I say, we all want law and order, but law enforcement right now is in a, um, a mode of responding to fear. I mean, that's, that is the history of law enforcement in this country. I don't know about law enforcement in other countries. I, I, uh, hope that maybe, um, Matthew can uh, speak to to that at least some, but in this country, as I mentioned before, the reason we have law enforcement is as a response to fear of the other. Um, that's that's probably about the best uh, non-controversial summary I can give. And uh, the problem it's it's just hard to stop talking about history because we initially uh, intentionally created a social underclass. Just as sure as there was a caste system in India, we created our own caste system where there was none before. We created black slavery in America. Now we didn't create black slavery, but we, we brought it here so that we could create a social underclass. Because uh, let's face it, there are some real fine benefits to having a social underclass around as long as you're not in it, <laughs> right? So we can, we can all see some of the benefits of having a social underclass. Um, you know, we, we all imagine having, um, you know, robots to do our bidding. That, that must be nice. That's a nice fantasy. It's kind of like a, a digital slave class, 
we can just tell them to do anything we want. We can take all the pressure off of us, all the hard work. You create that social class, uh, underclass, and you can benefit mightily from primary and secondary effects. And what we also know is that that social underclass was maintained and maintained and maintained. And even as the laws changed, there were new laws and mores that attempted to maintain the social underclass. And so where I'm, where I'm going here is at some point, at some point, you're, you're going to come to a boiling point. Either you're going to have to completely release that social underclass, which never really happens, or that social underclass is going to erupt and, and take what has been taken from them. And so now, all of a sudden, you really do need more police because your social underclass has gotten out of control. Uh, and so you have more fear, more distrust of the other, and more need to continue to put more and more police on the streets to maintain law and order from that social underclass that you created. It's hard for me to look at the, the innocent white person's plight when I know that they are simply benefiting uh, from a social underclass and or are just afraid of the underclass that they've benefited from now being unleashed. I'm sorry that's being unleashed, but it is being unleashed. It is a natural and proper progression of what should happen. And so I'm afraid that it will be a long time before we have true law and order, because to have true law and order that represents justice, you have to end the last vestiges of the social underclass. And we're not anywhere close to that yet. I got to ask you a question, Dave. Um, you and I have talked about great filters in the past uh, to just sort of refresh the audience that's not familiar with that. Great filters are things that that might end humanity on this planet altogether. Nuclear war, asteroid strikes, um, uh, cataclysmic weather due to uh, global anthropogenic, uh, global anthropogenic climate warming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. I wondered this morning in the run-up to, to this podcast whether it was even possible to do away with, with racism at the scale that we're uh, sort of discussing on this podcast. I, I wonder if racism might not be a potential great filter. Maybe not in the sense that it wipes us out. But I, I wonder if we can ever be all that we would like for humanity to be because I despair that we cannot overcome racism. I, uh, in my blog write-up, I posit that it'll take two to three more generations before we begin to make real progress. But I stop short of saying that we'll, we'll ever defeat it. I don't, I, I, I do think this might be that filter. I don't know that we will ever uh, defeat it. I think, um, you know, we should probably stop quoting Martin Luther King as if that were a turning point. It wasn't a turning point, not really. I mean, uh, we made some advances in law. We made some advances in law today. But look at how much blood it took to get the minor advances that we get. Now, now just 
play that forward. How much blood and violence will it take to get the kind of advances that we're talking about? Well, it would take revolution. Uh, by the way, America knows something about revolution. <laughs> we, uh, we used to be uh, one of your colonies there, Matt. How do you like us now? Um, you know, um, I, that's what it took, though. That's what it took. It, it, it wasn't negotiation. It wasn't a few riots, you know. It took a, a lot more than that. And I don't know of any great revolutionary change where an underclass became not an underclass that didn't require a war. Maybe Britain's occupation of India, uh, that that occupation ended, uh, as I recall, Matthew, you can refresh my uh, British history here, but as I recall, that occupation ended um, without a lot of, of violence and bloodshed, but it may be unique uh, in the annals of history. I, I'm not fully au fait with all the history there, even though some of my ancestors did serve in the British Army in India uh, at the, the start of the First World War, leading up to the start of the First World War. There was some bloodshed, there was some uprising in India, and the British dealt with those uprisings brutally. And there, there was a lot of bloodshed in those uprisings. So, the the British legacy in India, in terms of uh, uh, bloodshed and uh, ab absolute authoritative rule, is, isn't pleasant at points. There, maybe there are some bits that weren't so unpleasant, but that's not the point. The point is there were were some bits which are shameful, and mm. we we should know about them. Uh, but I'm at this point in history. I was going to say I'm more bothered by, but that that um, that risks um, minimising the value of the lives that are lost. So I'm going to change the phrase that I used. There is another longer-lasting legacy of history, and that is setting up of companies from, run from Britain uh, in the Indian subcontinent, which basically effectively siphoned all the money out of the subcontinent and into British pockets, which is much the same way as they did when they colonised Africa, parts of Africa as well. And I think that is probably a longer lasting crime in terms of the effects that happened. You know, but there was also some some terrible moments of bloodshed as well. I mean, maybe that's just the problem right there. We're very quick to congratulate human beings on a small moment of change when really the problem is too big to even warrant that congratulations, to be quite honest. And any and yeah. all these cases, because like, look, we're we like like David just said, let's get off of Martin Luther King's point. That wasn't a, that wasn't an, appla an applauding point because like now that I think about it, we learned about that in school as if that was the turning point. No, that was just like a piece of the long story that we're still reading. Yeah, there's um, I, I'd like to bring up something that I've brought up several times on social media in the last week, and uh, I'd, I'd like to know if you guys feel this is a helpful analogy to make. I, I think it works, but I'm happy to be corrected if you guys don't think it works. Around about 100 years ago, Britain had the suffragettes movement, which was women seeking the vote. That took a long, hard fight, and women had asked for the vote, and they'd been denied the vote. So they got violent, and they got pretty ferociously violent. They blew up shops, they, they blew up strategic points, they created noisy, violent protests. One even went ran in front of one of the horse races in 
in Britain to disrupt the horse, dis, dis, to disrupt the race, basically to create a visible uh, focus. This. And she got basically killed by a horse that happened to be owned by the king, and the king was there. I don't, we don't know if she intended to kill herself. We think that it was very possible that she just wanted to create a disturbance, but it, it ended badly for her. And there were all sorts of horrifically violent protests that a lot of these suffragette women engaged in. And they were demonized by much of the population at the time for creating much the kind of the same things that people are saying about the protests uh, today. But women got the vote. It took some time, but they got the vote. So the question I ask to people who are condemning the violent turn in some of the protests, and let's be blunt here, very, uh, in terms of percentage, there isn't a high percentage of violence per protest. Most of the protests are peaceful. Um, but anyway, the wider point I'm asking is, would women have got the vote if they had not been violent in their protests? Sorry, would they have got the vote sooner if they had not been violent in their protests? And the obvious answer is no, they wouldn't. Did women deserve the vote? Yes. Should they have made a noise about it? Yes. Is their violence to get that acceptable? Okay. Um so so you're you're jumping to the end are you yeah. um all right um I, i'll i'll start because this is um this is an incendiary topic and i don't give a damn so um i am i am not in favor of violence ethically speaking i i would like to think that uh that violence is a bad idea. I cannot condone violence. I cannot encourage violence. But I believe I might be a hypocrite. Uh, because I like the violence. I, I like wars that we win. I think that we have been in some wars in our time that were just Wars are violence. So I think that uh, the Civil War was an important war to fight. I celebrate the Civil War. It was violence. I'm glad we did it. I wish we had done it sooner. Um, the great movements that have brought on civil rights, none of them were done without some level of violence. And I think that that level of violence was necessary. In fact, if there had been no violence, if, if the opposition wasn't pushed hard enough, change wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And so I have to say, I like the violence that has led to uh, the kinds of revolutions that have freed and equalized human beings. And in this particular fight, because it is a fight, and if you do not think it is a fight, you are just wrong. You are in a different America. You are in a different world than I am. This is a fight. And we have been suckered into thinking that we were winning or making progress with peaceful revolution. But I don't believe that there is a such thing as peaceful revolution. And I think that Martin Luther King was played the fool. I think he was history's fool, and it might take us another 200 years to go back and look at that and see. But Martin Luther King was the white man's clown. 
They let him think he was winning. They let us think we were winning. And what did we win? What concessions did we win? We are still getting choked out by police today. We are not winning. We haven't been winning. NASCAR takes away their rebel flag. We're winning. President Trump will be able to say, look, we have eradicated uh, 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 racism under my watch. While doing a march soon do <laughs> in, a racist, in a racist city, a racist city we know about. These, well, these, these nonviolent like efforts, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm almost done. These nonviolent efforts have not led to us winning. <laughs> they have led to us losing. They have led to me. I wasn't supposed to be a freedom fighter, for God's sake. I was supposed to be in a flying self-flying car. What are you talking about? I, I can't, I have to be afraid when I see a police officer on a sidewalk that I'm walking by. This isn't winning. And so, yes, this is what it looks, this is what peaceful revolution looks like. And yet, the other day, a couple of weeks ago, when um, the demonstrations started and uh, the first night, it was very peaceful. Kumbaya. After that, there was some looting. And there was some violence against police. And it was disgraceful. But you know what? <laughs> After that, <laughs> we started getting some concessions. <laughs> so <laughs> do I, am I against the violence? I don't think I am. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I just want to know what the thing is we have to break to get the real concessions so that we could just do that. Let's just skip to that. Because this little pity Annie nonsense is just annoying. So I'll counter that, Dave. Um, because this is what you and I do, even when we're not, uh, even when we're not holding mics. Yeah. Well, this is this is just me unfiltered for a moment. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm. Yeah. <laughs> not new to me. Uh, but but I'll I'll go on record as saying I don't like violence. And I am not, I am not a fainting heart. I don't mind when things go antisocial. Um, on the other hand, I don't wear as a badge of honor that the United States is the only country ever to use atomic weapons on citizens of another country. I don't glorify that violence. I am probably one of the few gun owners in the United States who wishes that he could just turn them in and think that he would never, ever need a gun. I wish that all of our kids could walk to school without fear. I don't want violence. But I am aware that glorified or not, we're going to have it. And so the thing I want to know, the thing that I think is most important, the puzzle that I want to solve 
is how to have an open society where we can all treat each other equally with the least violence possible. I want to know what it will take to get our friends and our enemies not to the war table, but to the conference table with as few people having to say, I can't breathe as possible. But can they do that? I mean, I guess I'm, I'm stuck in a place with, with, with this entire situation, Andrew, at a place where um, when we look, I mean, we were just talking, I mean, I, sorry to go back to like a, another figure, but Malcolm X, we can't call this violence self-defense because, I mean, from the very beginning, this is literally... I mean, to even say any any of these actions at any point are violence is just ridiculous because the only the only instance of real violence is the initial point at which we now feel like we need to do these things. These are all actions out of defense because we're pressed in a corner. I take that point. Uh, so I use the word violence in continuation of David's use. Um, oh, no, 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 and I and I completely understand it. I wasn't, and I, and I used it in continuation, continuation of Matthew's use. Um, this <laughs> one can be passed all the way to Europe. Baby. It always <laughs> starts with the English, doesn't it? Yeah. Violence in the colonies. <laughs> that's it's the understanding because when we like that that that's why we were played the fool to think that Martin Luther King was our champion when he was one being played the fool the entire time. To, uh, when. Because now when we look back, Malcolm X is known as to be that, that, that radical protester in the past for black people. When I look back at that, I say, no, that was a man who he literally says, like, all of his motions were, were out of response to something that happened to him or them as, we as black people. So I'm mean, like, it's, it's, not, it's not really a question of being a hypocrite or not. We're, we're in danger. Like, so, and I, and I, I would add uh, this uh, to it's there's always the, the cry for uh, you know, just a little more patience, you know, a, a little bit more negotiation, a little bit longer, just hold the peace a little bit longer. Um, we've heard that for a long time. Um, not, that's not my plea, just so you know. No, I, well, no, I, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not implying that, but I'm, when I, when I talk about violence the way I just did, um, I think there are a lot of black people who don't want violence. Mo the vast majority of us don't want violence. Um, and, you know, for whatever reasons, for spiritual reasons, for uh, the brand of white man's Christianity that was foisted on black people. Yeah, I baited you out there, there. didn't you? Um, wow. That, that was foisted on black people and that kind of muddled their minds into thinking that they should just kind of stay content and quiet with uh, their various circumstances. We've always been told, look, just a little bit longer. You can get you can get what you want to just stay peaceful, stay quiet. Don't rock the boat. Um, this is uh, I think we have lived enough history to be able to put the lie to that. It, it is a lie. And so I, I'm once again, I don't know what the next step is for, you know, the revolution, but it's not sitting still and quiet and, you know, keeping white people comfortable while you suffer. I mean, I guess that's it. This bringing us to the table to talk like I, I, I on a regular basis, talk with you 
talk with with white with white men who are conser- or conservative. And while in the same breath they're saying they support me, um, and every instance in which I show them, uh, this is why why we as black people feel this way or experiencing this, um, it, it because it hasn't made them uncomfortable. It doesn't really matter. Like I, I talked I talked to a man the other day, and he told me I, I, after explaining to him that he has a like he has a white man who says he supports we as black people needs to make every effort that he can to take every minority that he knows to to um, to those polls to vote alongside with him so that way they can get their voices heard too and i asked him i was like and i was like and we know and we understand that right now the person who is we can clearly see working against that cause is um republicans i mean, I mean there's a lot of republicans and trump and, and trump's cabinet and, uh, um as well and when I, I immediately asked him i was like well i was like would you vote for i was like knowing that would you vote for biden he falls back on this understanding of oh um no um do nothing Joe or whatever they call him um right, right. and I'm just kind of like you, did you hear anything of what I just said like I just like it's not we come into the table and it's it's the moment you guys hear us say something that makes you guys uncomfortable or not and not not you Andrew and I don't know if it's you directly at least um every time we say something that makes you guys uncomfortable um is it's as if it's now now negotiations are all all off the tables for you guys. Right. Oh, okay. And we have to, and we have to oh. settle for minimal ground. <laughs> right. Okay. So there's a there's a bit of a misunderstanding that I can't let linger here. Um, so when I said, what does it take to get people away from the war table and to the conference table? I didn't mean white and black. And so I completely get why you heard that. But that's not what I meant. We've got to get racist and non-racists to the conference table. Because this isn't a white, black problem quite that way. This is, this is, a, this is a problem of, of whoever's carrying the badge of racism. And those are the people I want at the table. And frankly, I don't give a damn what the color is. They're, now, are white people, uh, are they the ones that cause this racism issue? Yes. By the way, if you think I'm not a proud Southerner, you don't know me well enough. Uh, I'm a very proud Southerner. I'm, I'm happy that I can fish and hunt. Uh, I'm happy that I can build things with my hands, that I work on the things I own on my own. I, I carry the Southern tradition that I grew up in, and I carry it proudly. But the people that need to come to the conference table to talk about, to talk about racism, the people that need to be convinced aren't the black people and the white people, it's the racist people. And so I'm not saying, Chase, that I think you and I need to get to the conference table on opposite sides. Fuck, we're already here on the same side. (laughs) That's what this show is. We are here on the same side. Well, and let me, the, go ahead, Dave. Well, no, I was. I just wanted to comment on your being a proud Southerner, which I know uh, that you are, and I know uh, what you mean by that because uh, we have a we have a lot of context uh, to go through. So I was I was born and raised a Southerner too. I'm very happy not to be in the South, um, but the fact is, um, I'm not a proud Southerner. Uh, in Chase, to speak to something that Chase uh, said 
before. I just wanted to uh, echo as well, uh, in no uncertain terms. Uh, not only am I not a proud Southerner, I'm not a proud American. Um, I don't. I don't especially like America that much. Uh, I'm not a patriot. I haven't been a patriot for a long time. I'm not a flag waver. I understand Colin Kaepernick uh, when he takes a knee uh, when the national anthem is sung. I, I understand it all too well. Um, and um, so I know that this this makes me the enemy for a lot of people. But I, I have a I have a completely different experience of America. Is not just a historical knowledge of America anymore. When I was young, when I was you know in my twenties, it was just a vague historical knowledge. I'm fifty now. I have a an actual <laughs> experiential knowledge of uh, America. And whereas I can't pick any other country in the world that I would rather be, maybe maybe Switzerland. Um, I. I don't like America. I don't. I don't think that America is great. Uh, in in when Donald Trump says to make America great again, he's thinking about a bygone time that was never great for me. Um, and so I I think that that's part of the conversation that we just have such different experiences of what it even means to be uh, American. Uh, I, I honestly don't care if America burns. This is it does not feel like my home. It is the place where I live. I don't I don't really feel like I have a home in this world. Fuck America. Yeah. I mean, and that will go down in history as America's greatest failure. So I get that that we come at those things differently. Um, uh, I'll stand by what I said. Uh, I am not proud of Southern slavery, uh, David. It, I know and you by the way, I don't. That. I don't judge what you said. I just. I wanted to use that to to springboard uh, that. So I, I know that this is very confusing for people hearing how someone like um, Redneck Andrew and uh, very suave and sophisticated David can be friends. But um, <laughs> is that what they think? Boy, that sounds like how the British describe America. <laughs> <laughs> you guys should so be a couple. <laughs> and what makes you think we aren't? Um, okay, this has gone quite far enough. My too much? Did I reveal too much? Okay. Uh, my Never proud mind. southern DNA is uh, flaring up. <laughs> How about those bears? Uh, <laughs> so. No, look, so. It's a it's a point well taken, Dave. This is this is actually part and parcel of this whole conversation. That I can say I'm a proud Southerner, and and while that I was very careful to put a fence around what I meant by that, because I don't want anybody in this conversation or outside of this conversation that will ever hear it no, to think. Me, yeah, I know you did. I, so I, I don't have any doubt that you and I are are communicating quite well. But I, I do want to put a pin in the map here. I do not condone harming people. I don't condone slavery. The South was wrong to fight for slavery. Britain was wrong to participate in the slave trade. There is no sense in which any kind of slavery should ever be allowed. We shouldn't build relationships 
on the basis of having something that someone else can't have or a power differential that we own that, that someone else can't attain. And if that sounds too Pollyanna to the listener, get your own fucking podcast. But those are the values I have. There are some values that I'm, that I, that I gained through growing up in the South, a certain amount of independence, a certain, a certain amount of self-reliance. I'm happy for those things. And by the way, David, you got those things too. That's the thing. But it's a, it, it is, it is the biggest shame of this podcast that the point where we ought to be able to agree the most, at least three of us, because three of us live here in the States, we ought to all be able to say, I'm proud to be an American. And if we can't, that's the failure. And that hurts me. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be, but I guess for, to me, it's not at it's at complete fault and almost like a almost like almost as if a blind awareness, not and not by you, by America as a whole, um, as to the reason why. Because I mean, like just the saying that we are American, proud to be American, um, that we only we say we say that as of now, as if where we are now isn't the problem, where we were in the past wasn't the problem. I, I guess it's like for us to say that to say you're proud to be American is saying that you're proud of the fact that it's built on the back of a it's literally built on the back of oppression like that is america and i guess it's like and then now while i don't think you're saying that saying you're proud of those things it's a blind acceptance of that pride so so i take uh i take that criticism exactly as it is that that is exactly right i am able as a result of oppression to say that thing that you and david can't say now I want to challenge everyone else white listening to this podcast. Can you hear it the same way? I didn't, I didn't honestly expect to have implicit racism identified in my own speech on this podcast. But it was. And I'll loan up to that. So I want to talk about, um, I, want to, I want to talk, if we dare, about our own personal racisms. Uh, but first, so you can think about that. <laughs> so if, you, if, you, if you're uncomfortable now, uh, <laughs> think, think about that. What I, I want to uh, just take a moment and double back. Um, I did some Christian baiting earlier, which I told myself that I wouldn't do. But, uh, hell, this is David with Skeptics and Seekers, people. <laughs> what the fuck did you expect? Um, so um, I just want to pay that off a little bit. Uh, so some of you uh, might know, because I've maybe said it once on a podcast, but I, I think it's important uh, for you to know at this point that one of the last major things that I did as a Christian uh, so before for heading out the door, uh, I led a ministry in uh, Alabama, largely uh, called One Faith Ministries, and it was a racial reconciliation uh, ministry. And so Andrew and I hadn't caught up um, with each other at that time. These were still in the dark days, the late late nineties, early two thousands. 
Um, but um, one of the things that I did in that ministry was um, uh, there, there I had a curriculum. There was a there was an entire curriculum, uh, historical piece, um, uh, current events piece, reconciliation uh, piece, because uh, these the church in the South, as it is everywhere, is very racially divided. Uh, there is what you would uh, correctly say a black church and a white church, uh, and you know, given the same denomination in a particular town, it's like separate water fountains uh, from the past. There's separate churches. There's a black Southern Baptist church and there's a white Southern Baptist church. There's a black church of Christ, a white church of Christ. It doesn't matter how small the town is. There's usually two, um, and so that's that's just one of the interesting features. Uh, of the South and in, uh, through small town America that exists to this day. So uh, a part of my uh, talking about history now is just left over from the massive deep dive into history, uh, into race history that I, that I took for that ministry. And one of the little nuggets uh, that I picked up, which I threw out uh, kind of as a weaponized way, it really wasn't fair a little bit ago, is uh, how black Christians uh, were given, was were fed a brand of racist white Christianity. Uh, so they, the, the black slave was quote unquote Christianized. Uh, if you will. And so there's a there's a kind of a whole history on how black churches even began. Uh, largely, they were they were built by white churches, uh, white Christians for their own reasons. And part of the doctrine that was very specifically tailored to white to black Christians was the aspect of this is your lot in life. This is your place in the world where you uh, are called to serve God. And so whatever state I am in, let us therewith be content. Uh, this was the type of thing. And the whole idea was to create a religion that would pacify the black man so that they would not see themselves as equals. We started talking about things like spiritual equals, but but not practical equals. Um, so I could I could go on um, about that for days. I just wanted to uh, let you know there's actual real history behind that snipe. And if you do not know that history, do not come at me. <laughs> come at your history books. Uh, we can we can talk about that another time. I um, but I do want to say that we we weren't planning on talking about uh, race history in the church, but just know that that is that is a piece of this puzzle uh, that some of this, you know, may it, the puzzle may not seem to fit well right now because we're leaving out a major piece uh, of it, which is uh, race and the church. When I was uh, worshiping at a church in central Alabama uh, long ago, uh, this least uh, least 15 or 20 years. This was one of those white churches of Christ. Um, David, I think I've told you this story. Uh, I was standing uh, with the preacher, uh, and I'll, I'll just leave his name off uh, I'll, because I'd prefer not to identify where I lived. Uh, but I was standing with the preacher and uh, a black family. 
uh, worshiped with us this particular Sunday. And they came up, and they introduced themselves to this preacher. And this preacher said to, uh, to the husband, there's a church, and he named a, a, a black church of Christ several miles away. He said, I think you'd be more comfortable worshiping there. Happened after the year 2000, folks. In fact, it had to have happened in 2007. So that is, that is the history of Christianity in the South. White people and black people, they don't go to church together. And if they do, they're encouraged not to. They're told not to by church leadership. Now, maybe you think, maybe you think that incident is isolated. It's not the only time I saw it. It is not isolated. Uh, no one with their eyes open driving can think that it's isolated. The, the churches are still there. <laughs> They're still, we still worship this way. So, um, okay, so, um, yeah, so let's start winding down and uh, getting uh, real uncomfortable in the process. Um, I'll just start so that I can get it out of the way. Uh, I, am, I am a racist. Uh, I, I know that I am a racist. Uh, and it, this was hard to admit for me um, a few years ago. But when I embarked on this ministry and started studying history, I had to become honest with myself because I studied more than black history. Uh, I studied other histories, too. And I also had to study my own heart in certain things. So I will tell you now that my racism uh, has to do with Mexicans. I am a uh, Mexican racist. <laughs> so why is that? I have no idea. I think that there is a, I think that there is a part of me deep down as a minority that sees the Mexican as the closest um, minority that can compete for resources. Uh, they can compete for sympathies. They can compete for jobs that uh, white people don't want to do. Uh, you know, they, uh, they, um, they're the competition. And, you know, we have as many uh, ugly, nasty stereotypes about Mexicans as whites do about blacks. Um, I won't repeat them here. Uh, I will just simply say that um, that's, that's a bit of bigotry that I have had a hard time excising uh, from my heart. And I'll uh, give another uh, area where I might be racist, although I'm not sure it's race here, but it's Muslims. I live in uh, New Jersey, and I used to at least work in New York. Uh, you're not going anywhere without Muslims. <laughs> um, I don't trust them. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm sorry. Uh, this may be more of a religious thing. When I see a Muslim, especially a Muslim woman with her um, uh, head and body wrapped, um, I think, is she hiding a bum? Um, I don't, I just don't, my first, my first reaction when I see uh, those sign, those overt signs of Islam is I don't trust it. Uh, now, I'm not proud of these things. It's not easy for me to say. But I just want you to say that I want you to know that I've uh, 
I've earned my right to talk about racism a little bit. I know what it is because I can see it in the mirror. And um, I can be honest about it, whatever direction it comes from. And so I'm just going to say that those are things that I will continue to work on because of my upbringing, because of uh, my programming. I don't know that I will ever get these things uh, out of the core of my heart. But, uh, but they are there. I would say one difference between my racism and the racism of, say, a white person toward me is that I, I am powerless to actually uh, to make the lives of a Mexican or a Muslim person miserable. I am powerless to do that. Um, I don't even want to do it, but I'm powerless to do it. Uh, and so there is a little bit of a difference when racism comes from the powerful toward the powerless. Uh, but that is not to say that the powerless cannot have uh, various racisms among themselves. Okay. Um, I, I paused. I, you, you heard me pause to, to let anyone else have a, a crack at admitting their own racism. Yeah, I think they took a step back, uh, leaving you where you were. <laughs> no, well, I, I, I wanted to speak uh, up on a, on a painting about myself I, I wanted to express. Please. Um, for me, I am definitely, um, I would say, gra I would say gradually towing, I would say easily gradually on the, towing on the line of racist towards um, towards whites, um, just in a sense that I will easily prejudge a white person on for how basically leading me to leading me to fear to fear them or ne or just or just hate them in a, in, for reasons that honestly that person that individual person will never have shown me. I have been working on racism in my own life, um, well, since David and I grew up together in the South. I share a, uh, I share a, a racism about Muslims, David. You, you talked about uh, uh, women of Islam wearing uh, burqas and, and full body wraps and all of that kind of thing. I have a different racist response, but it's no less racist. I don't ask if they're hiding a bomb. I ask, is their husband beating them to make sure that they go out in public that way? Would they rather be doing something else? Are they being religiously oppressed through violence? But you see, it's no less racist. It's, it's, just, it's just a different response. And... Um, if I'm if I count the hits and misses over the course of my life, if I ask about um, what strangers have been kind to me when I needed a, a moment of kindness, you know, can you tell me where the peanut butter is or or, um, you know, who stops uh, when I'm crossing the street or, uh, you know, who is likely to take a blind guy and and uh, show him where the exit is, that kind of thing. If I'm being honest, I look for black men and women first if I need a hand. And yet in this podcast, I was caught out uh, with some racism that I honestly didn't know I was concealing. And it was, it was simple white on black racism. I don't know what to do about that as an individual because this is a demon that 
I try to stay on top. I try to fight it every day. And like David, I don't know if I'll, I don't know if I will ever truly succeed in, in banishing this sort of darkest part of my heart. But I can say this. I'm always open to being shown where the problem is. And now I've got something new to, uh, to work on. So I appreciate the podcast, guys. I, Matthew? Yeah, okay. Uh-huh. I don't know if I hold any racism. And I, I say that in, in all honesty. I hold some classism. And because in the part of the UK that I live in, we are 99% white. We come across non-white people, people of colour, whatever phrase you want to use to, um, on an extremely rare occasion. It's definitely not every day. But I do have classism. There's a lot of poverty in the area that I am and in the town that I'm in. So if I have a whiff of uh, marijuana, in the air which i do occasionally or i see a police car driving through the the houses the street the local streets around me my mind immediately goes to certain houses in the vicinity where where there are people who they live off the state they don't they don't have enough income from employment to look after themselves so they're helped by the state so those are the houses i assume are are at fault maybe i've got a solid basis for that assumption but that's that's irrelevant that's what i do and it's definitely class uh, a class-based response i genuine i genuinely can't identify any racism myself i'm not going to say that's because i'm absolved of any racism there might be some i'm just not aware that i hold it and maybe that is worse maybe it's maybe it's worse to be racist and not aware of it than it is to be aware of it because then you can at least do something about but what i would like to do is i'd like to relay a twitter conversation that i had about a year ago to you guys and see what you feel about what i did and what i did wrong because i'm fairly sure i probably did something wrong in this twitter conversation so let's use this as a public learning exercise and and a way to have better conversations i'm doing this from memory because i simply couldn't be bothered to go back through a year's worth of uh, my Twitter feed to find out exactly what was said. So I'm doing this as best as I can from memory. So some facts might not be right, but I think the gist of it is it. So I saw a Twitter comment from somebody who was black describing how a black relative of theirs, female relative of theirs had been raped by a white guy. And for that reason, all white people or all white men, can't remember which, uh, were, were pigs. Yeah, were, were, were shits, you use whatever uh, adjective. Um, and we we see this kind of blanket statement in sexism as well. You know, women saying one man treated me badly, therefore all men are, men are shits. So my response among multiple responses was, well, about 30 years ago, my mum was uh, raped by a black guy. Is it okay if I say the same about all blacks is, is is that acceptable um and the response that came back to me 
probably I don't think from the same original person, but the response that then came back to me was, oh, it was deserved because of what uh, because of the legacy of white people. So that's the summary of that Twitter conversation. So I want to open it up to people to comment on that. And I probably did something wrong in my response. I, I acknowledge that. So it's it's to me my immediate I guess my immediate notice is for I guess because like I, I if I'm understanding like it's the, it's the like when you said that it immediately um invalidated his entire all of his feelings about what just happened to his sister. So instead of saying creating a counterexample of what you don't want him to do, um, you can say like you I mean first of all it's addressing well like, that's atrocious for any person to do that but it's um, but you want to we want to make sure that we address the evil in the world for what it is. Rapists are terrible people, not white people are terrible people. And that's a, like that is a comment that I'd be able to say to him. But sometimes it's also realizing where where and I don't and, and, I, and this is probably for you not being aware of like, I don't know where, where you saw that per, if you saw that per, where that person was from or anything like that or if that person was from America or not, but just not being fully aware of the, the racial climate of certain comments um, can definitely lead to i will say maybe choosing to not comment yes you're right and i normally i wouldn't comment something like that because what happened to my mother a long time ago is a personal thing and i don't know why i would put that out on twitter i must have been in a bad state myself emotionally for me to actually put that out on twitter because i can't take it back now but you are right it's it's not i acknowledge now thinking back on it that that's not the right kind of thing that person probably needed a white person to show sympathy not to say yeah well the same happened to me can i take the same attitude it's a bit um it's a bit pretentious there's probably a better adjective to use for that but yeah i I acknowledge that and you're right to criticize that so go ahead i was just gonna um lift up what um Chase uh, said, um, it's a thing that I'm actually starting to learn myself. So, I mean, it's not like, you know, if you're black, you automatically know these things. <laughs> that's, that's not true. So I, I might have, for instance, done the same thing as you, uh, Matt. It would have still been uh, a faux pas uh, to do it. Uh, and so the, the principle here um, to, to remember is that when a person expresses their pain, they do not, in fact, want to know about your pain. Yeah, very Uh, good point. They are expressing their pain. And if their pain is not enough to hold your attention, uh, then they they chose the wrong person to express it to. Mm. And maybe Twitter isn't the right place to express that pain, but for some people you know that that's where where they do it but i'd like to draw it back to the violence in in the protests and the violence in the protests in in some cases not all but in many cases is the expression of people's pain and we should be paying attention to the pain we should be paying attention to the cause of that pain and whinging about someone pulling down a statue is the wrong focus should be saying why are you hurting so much that the statue had to come down what can we do to do some to do something about fixing that the statue is not important and and there you have spoken as the voice of god if i could just say one more small comment because i i think i wrote this in my write-up 
and if I didn't, I should have. Um, but the there's a social contract uh, that we have uh, with each other as citizens, and that social contract is if you are in danger or distress, you should cry for help. And the reason you should cry for help is not because you're a crybaby, but because you need help. And by by calling uh, loudly, you will get someone's attention and they can come and help you. So that is that is a social contract. Uh, and by and large, I think that's what good people try to do. Black people and people who feel like they have been oppressed have been crying for help for a long time. And even the a, a white person who doesn't understand the history, they don't have to understand the history. All they have to understand is that they are receiving a cry for help. And the social con contract is when someone cries for help, you go and see what it's about and see if you can help. And for 150 years, our cries have not been heard. And it, it takes a George Floyd to get someone to look up and say, oh, was that a cry for help? Or it takes a protest for someone to say, oh, was that a cry for help? We have been crying for help all of this time. And so part of that anger uh, that a lot of us feel is that there is no social contract for us. When we cry for help, you can just turn your back and ignore it and go back to playing golf. When We're one of you cries for help, country. Right. I mean, but when, when one of yours cries for help, we all stop what we're doing and go running uh, and figure it out. And I just say historically that it, it just feels like our cries for help uh, are only answered. Um, and I know only is the wrong word, but it, it just seems like the only people that we can reliably count on to answer our cry for help is one of us who is also oppressed. And um, so at some point, that feeling of a betrayed and broken social contract uh, gets overwhelming. I mean, when I talk about the history and I say it wasn't taught in school, the reason why that doesn't matter that much is because we've been crying for help for 150 years. At some point, someone should have said, "This. why are these people crying for help? Let me look into this, right? And instead they're saying, why are these people crying for help? I'm trying to watch all in the family. And that's, that's, a, that's kind of the difference there. So anyway. Just shut um, up and dribble. Yeah. <laughs> no one ask your opinion. Put the ball in the hole. <laughs> Two things. Um, I read an article before George, George Floyd. Um, this would have been back early this year or late last year. Um, this was also before uh, Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, it, he, he at least deserves an honorable mention uh, because he was killed uh, by someone who had worked for the district attorney's office. Uh, anyway, uh, two things. This article that I read at CNN said that it is time for the black community to stop forgiving. And I thought that was the right call. One of the things that, that white people are used to seeing out of the black community is somebody gets killed and then and then a prominent family member, you know, a family spokesman for, for that family says, we just want peace. We just want everybody to forgive each other and, and to go on. It's time for that to stop. And I don't like violence. I put a pin in that part of the map long ago in this conversation. 
But there are certain things that you shouldn't have to forgive. And so this is a white guy calling for black people to stop forgiving. It's time for that to stop. The second thing is, if you're listening to this on the proscenium feed, there will be a link in the show notes for uh, a bunch of tests created by uh, a coalition of professors at Washington University, Yale, Harvard, and Penn State, if I remember the four, four universities correctly. I got three of them right. I'm not sure I got the fourth one right. Not sure Penn State, it may be another university, but anyway. They created a lot of, uh, a lot of tests. They're called implicit bias tests. You can take them on your computer. It takes five or 10 minutes. It's something you do with your keyboard and your mouse. Um, and maybe you've listened to this podcast and you heard, you heard us all admit to certain types of, of bias, uh, or racism or both. And maybe you think, yeah, that's, that's nice for them, but, but I, I really don't have any biases. I really don't have any racism. I really don't have any, uh, prejudice that I'm harboring. And so I'm going to encourage you to, Follow the link to the implicit bias test and take the white black bias test and just see who you are. So uh, that, that actually sounds like a good call for closing comments. Um, so um, let's mix things up a little bit. Um, Matt, I know that you hate being called Matt and you also hate going first. Uh, and so <laughs> Go on, find something else. Make it a triplet. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to call on uh, you to represent all Europeans. Your credit to your race, Matt. Uh, oh, to uh, <laughs> to um, that's not saying much, but then my race probably doesn't deserve much. This out. I you know I I have all of these little racial jibes just at the tip of my tongue dancing around you'd be surprised at the ones i'm suppressing people um i can just tell you it's nice to be a black man in a room and not the token uh, of the day so matt <laughs> you're awesome you're awesome i'm gonna give you the first last word okay um, we haven't touched the subject, which I was hoping that we would get onto. So I'll touch it briefly. And I'll just say to all you white people listening, white privilege exists. Deal with it and do something about it. But for fuck's sake, don't deny it. It's there. Do something about it. There is a very excellent piece that I've been seeing today. It's a response to the terrible piece by Heather MacDonald on the myth of systemic police racism. But this is by the British philosopher Jonathan Pierce. Go and read that instead. Look him up on Google and he does a brilliant takedown of that Heather MacDonald piece. There is racism out there. Whites are guilty of it. And whether you're racist or not, white privilege exists. Look it up. You may have come from a poor background you may have worked yourself to where you are now and you may be questioning the existence of this so-called white privilege you having worked yourself into a place where you are now where you're comfortable from a poor background does not mean you don't have privilege it means 
that a black person in the same circumstances would not have had the same opportunities as you did and would not have had the same benefits from the small opportunities that you had. That's white privilege. It exists. Do something about it. And that's what I wanted to say. Thank you, Matt. Um, Chase, um, how do you follow that? Yeah, um, I mean, just honestly building off of that, as a black man, I'm as a and I consider myself to be at least a little bit more educated than, unfortunately, the the rest of the black people out there. I am too busy, and just like I assume David as well, we're too busy trying to make sure the rest of our black community understands what's going on to them, just like we do. We don't have time to tell you guys how you can stop hurting us. We need you guys to see that you're hurting us and stop it. I mean, that's it. You guys have put us in a position where we we do not have enough of enough educated black men out there even realizing that they're being hurt in the way that they are they just know that they're angry upset or scared and they need we're to be trying to educate them to take the time to also educate the other side too so i need you guys as white people who understand and say they're say you're with us do your part and educate every other person who does not understand and that, that that's your guys' job to tackle white privilege not ours and that, that's really all i have to say about this andrew last words yeah, I want to um, I want to draw together the thread from the very from the very beginning. We read fifty two names of black men and women who were unarmed, without a history of mental illness, who were shot and killed by police officers on duty in the United States between twenty fifteen and today. We read fifty two names. There are a hundred and one of them, but here's the problem. This is, this is the thing that I think is, is if, if you just want numbers if you, and you just want to know how bad the situation is. The trouble is, I pulled those 52 names out of a Washington Post database, and there'll also be a link to the database in the show notes. Those were just black men and women. It didn't include the Hispanic community or or other minority communities. But here's, 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 the real, here's the real slap in the face. Back in 2015, the FBI released a report about police shootings. And at the end of this report, they had to acknowledge that they only had about half the data. That was their estimate. And here's why. In the United States, I pulled those 52 names out of 101 off the Washington Post database because police murder people in the streets with guns and we don't require those records. The police in the United States voluntarily report their own gun violence to the FBI. So they can tell you what you make every year. They can tell you who your internet service provider is. They can require you to vaccinate your children, which by the way, you absolutely should. But you know what we can't do? We can't offer this country an honest recollection of people being killed by guns in the hands of police. And if you don't think that's wrong, 
You're just not in the same place I am. So I want to uh, just continue that thought uh, into my last words. Um, we are not just talking about uh, guns. <laughs> so um, if we just narrow it down to guns, we don't get uh, George Floyd. He, no gun violence there. He was just choked out like a fool. Um, I am reminded of the person whose name I cannot uh, recall right now. A uh, big black guy was uh, caught selling cigarettes, uh, individual cigarettes. You know, that's the thing that, you know. Ferguson, Missouri. That's it. Um, yeah. What was his name? I don't Ferguson. know. There have been too many outrages since him. Um, he's just Mike another fool. Um, he got, he got, he, he got, uh, Caught up in a chokehold for no good reason. He had no weapons, choked to death. Um, you know, we talk about some of these uh, instances. These are just the ones caught on camera. <laughs> the ones, we can go back to Rodney King. Um, uh, the, the ones that we've got film for. Um, and then it's not just the killings um, by police. There's also the vigilante activity. Um and so we don't get to talk about uh, people like Ahmad Arbery, um, who is uh, who was killed by vigilantes. And as I mentioned in uh, my historical piece, vigilantism has always been a kind of a an unofficial slash wink wink official uh, way of dealing with the problem. And uh, we have a hard time getting vigilantes brought to justice because they were doing justice and it's hard to get to see uh, juries to to say that they were doing otherwise uh so it's not just those killed by gun violence of the police or by police or even by vigilantes we also have to consider the people that survived this is a uh, record that i looked into but i knew that wouldn't have time to work into the program today the people who survive police violence. Well, there are numerous uh, cases where people survive but are maimed or injured, uh, otherwise left not the same for the rest of their lives. They didn't win a lawsuit. <laughs> they, they are forgotten. They are not even mentioned in the news. So um, the problem is so much bigger so much bigger than the than the few times you see it on television the four or five times that you know it breaks out to to be on television it happens all the time every day in every black neighborhood throughout the country and um i have i have i've lost my tears i uh, andrew can attest i Every time, you know, we talk about these things. We get together on the phone. We talk about them. And I just uh, these days, I just say I can't. I can't be bothered. I can't. I can't be bothered to care. I don't. I, um, you know, it's just one more. One more fool. Uh, death by police. I don't. I don't have time for that. Uh, I got other stuff to do. Uh, we've we've been going through this as a as a people for 150 years, unbroken. It's never stopped. I don't have time to look at another case. It's it's all the same case. And until we're ready and 
able and willing to deal with that one case, because this is really one case of systemic institutional racism. Until we're willing and able to deal with that, the individual incidents don't matter. Don't quote Martin Luther King to me. I'm done with him. D don't talk about rallies um, and protests with me. I'm done with those two. Uh, I don't know where I am right now. Uh, I feel adrift. I am a man without a home. I don't know who my people are. And so my people are the, the friends that I collect over the internet from time to time, day after day, and they're without race and creed. And uh, you're my brothers and sisters on uh, SNS, my fellow podcast partners. Um, and I know that you've heard me say this sort of thing before, but what you don't understand is what's behind it, you see, because you really are the, the only people that I have. I do not connect with a race, and I certainly don't connect with a country. I am a man without a country. So let's be people without a country together. I'm for that. Dave, how do they hit you? Usually with a bobby stick. Uh, Baseball bat. Okay. So. Baton. <laughs> um, how do how do the listeners get in touch? Because it's time for us to do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> you understand my confusion, right? Um, <laughs> um, skeptics and seekers at gmail.com. This will be one of the few podcasts where I will not make a overly long pitch for uh, surviving Corona. Uh, but you can find that at uh, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. Just look at the first tabs of our surviving uh, corona. And uh, the, the need is still there. And uh, we appreciate your support uh, there. But uh, you will also hear me around the Internet. I'll be um, doing a, a podcast with uh, Chris Date tomorrow on Calvinism for anyone who gives a damn about that. And uh, Sunday, uh, which is the day after, uh, us doing this podcast, I will be uh, on uh, Secular Soup. I uh, don't know if you've heard of that podcast, but I got an invite to that this week, and I'll be talking about race uh, over on Secular Soup, so look out for that show. Uh, so that's that's how you hit me. And uh, if you uh, if you want to get in touch with Matthew or I, it's ReasonPress at gmail.com reasonpress at gmail.com. Uh, Dave, we both have a similar problem with, um, uh, with connecting. And like you, uh, I feel equally close to the, to the people online and the people that we podcast with. And uh, we've been friends for a long time, man. And I damn sure hope it goes as much longer as it has. Yeah. Hallelujah. Hey, Chase, uh, do you want people to be able to contact you? Uh, yeah, um, if people, I mean, I'm definitely open. People ask questions or share their opinions, thoughts. 
um, go ahead and add me or find me on Instagram is usually a good way to contact me right now at oh that's Chad. Um, yes, I do know my name is Chase, but it is oh that's Chad. <laughs> was was that was that your slave name? Uh, I, I don't. Is there a, is there some history about this we should know about? Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to laugh at that. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is. A, it's more of a, it's more of a friend story. Um, from times when I used to go out and uh, it'd be a funny story of like uh, like when a friend messed up my name and from then on it was oh that's Chad when uh when I would go out and drink with my friends. I see. Um, if you will, Chase, if you'll shoot me your Instagram URL, I'll throw it into the uh, proscenium show notes so that when this lands, people can hit you from either podcast. Yeah, I'll go ahead and um, email it to you after this. Cool. Andrew, you simply have to stop inviting people to hit us, okay? They, they're already <laughs> enough people doing this. Come, come on, come on, man. Come on. <laughs> Enough. Um, you can have my wallet. I mean, I, I surrender. It's when he says, shoot you an email. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you're the one that's supposed, you're supposedly the only one among us that's not racist. Uh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, in the show went so well up to this point. Actually, I don't even know if it went that well. Hey, uh, people, before we disgrace ourselves further, uh, I, I wish I could apologize for some of the offense I caused. I don't. I may have said some things that on reflection I might walk back uh, later, but I'm not sorry that I said what I said, even if I said some things that were wrong, uh, because this is how I feel. This is who I am, and all of you who are used to, uh, you know, being very comfortable around me because I'm a very tame black guy, uh, and uh, I I laugh with you, and I know your history, and I, um, you know, I have some bit of intelligence. I'm somewhat uh, coherent when I speak at times, uh, and so I know that I'm I'm I have played the role of the good, well-trained black person for a lot of people. And today I'm just not playing that role for you. And so this is the real me unmask. If you're uncomfortable with that, fuck you. Uh, and that is truly how I feel uh, from here on out. I will go back to being a nice tame black person and you can feel comfortable with me again, but know that this is who I really am. Well, we should get cross about racism. Let's be blunt about it. Racism should make us angry. Racism should make us absolutely livid and cross. And we should feel heat in our skin from the, ferocity of our temper over racism and in those circumstances it is not possible to be nice and tame and we will misspeak and we will say things that upset and hurt someone but screw them we're cross remember the fact that david even has to say something that he has to step out of a role as a black man and remember we're always as black men we're always black people we're always playing roles every day that's a good yeah, reminder yeah, I, you know, I was trying to, I was, I was trying to end this podcast like <laughs> ten minutes ago, <laughs> um, and because I did the white guy spoil it for you again? No, no. Uh, although I must say, um, when you say we're cross, um, I think what a tame, what a tame way of saying that. I mean, I don't know if it's just you're 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 trying to say that you are. P pissed off with the highest degree of passivity, and it comes out uh, cross. 
I'm, I'm, I'm a bit cross. <laughs> well, right. But remember the British history of violence behind I, those words. I understand. <laughs> I'm just saying it just it's 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 so cute. Your crossness. Uh, <laughs> I I am the level of look for this is the height of British temper. This is this is so high in its level of crossness. It is equivalent to a Cornish person putting jam and cream the wrong way around on a oh on God. a bun. It is the equivalent of someone <laughs> putting milk and hot water in their cup of tea in the wrong order. This is the level of crossness. Oh. This is absolutely the peak of how British rage. How do you take that seriously? <laughs> the compared. Like I, I mean, I'm still trying to figure out the the, the proper order of tea. That, that, that's the wrong one. <laughs> well, look, Matthew's offered to show you, but I don't think <laughs> I'd take him up on it. <laughs> I feel that you guys are not taking my my complaints seriously. Yes, yeah, so you know, I I have hit the big red button. This is this is gone far enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I am saving us from ourselves at this point. <laughs> Look, I, I will. Okay. I will say that there needed to be some decompression. This yeah. was the hardest damn podcast I've ever done. Uh, I have been uh, nervous about doing this podcast, and uh, Andrew, you know that I'm. I'm not overtly nervous about anything, uh, yeah. but uh, I've I've had some uh, dark moments in the run up to this podcast and um there was even a there was a, a brief moment it wasn't serious but there was a brief moment when i thought about begging out thank you for listening to this episode of proscenium i hope you appreciated the format and the method in which we expressed our thoughts and ideas on this please do bear in mind that the four of us on this episode are friends and people who trusted each other to say what they said and the laughter and the goofing off wasn't because we devalue or find the idea of racism humorous but because sometimes in moments of dark laughter and jokes are a great way to let out the steam, let out some pressure. It doesn't mean that we're any less serious about how we feel about racism. It just means, as David expressed at the end there, that the reality of those who face racism, face mistrust of those who they should trust. What it means is that people like David Someone who I've had a pleasure of getting to know over the past few years. Someone who I trust, respect, admire. For people like David, the reality of everyday racism is dark. And when he says he's tired, it means that he's emotionally drained and worn out. And when he laughs and goofs off, as you've heard in this episode, it means that he is seeking and desiring a safe place and a moment of solitude away from that 
daily reality. And me, as a middle-class white dude in the Garden of England, has no idea at all what David's talking about. And that's why it's privilege. And it hurts. So, I thank you listeners for getting this far. I hope this episode hit the right note. Reasonpress at gmail.com for any and all feedback. Thank you.